Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, I'm joined by Andrea Lawler to talk about their debut novel, Paul Takes the Form of a Mortal Girl. Andrea Lawler lives in Western Massachusetts and teaches writing at Mount Holyoke College. They are a fiction editor for Fens and the author of a chapbook, Position Papers, from Factory Hollow Press. And Andrea's first novel, Paul Takes the Form of a Mortal Girl, we're going to be talking about today, Andrea, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you so much for having me. So how would you describe this novel? Uh, I, I think I would describe it as a coming-of-age story about a queer shapeshifter in the early 90s in the US. And Paul, Paul Polydorus, he's our, he's our main character, Paul, sometimes Polly. Um, he's half Greek, for reasons perhaps we might touch on later in the interview. Tell us more about him. Well, Paul, um, when in the beginning of the novel, in the sort of present of the novel, it's 1993, it's Iowa City. Paul is a pretty bad college student and a bartender at a queer bar, a nightclub in Iowa City. And Paul is uh, omnivorous, curious, loves music and, and film and um, conquest. And the idea of him being a, a shapeshifter, now there's a couple of obvious literary antecedents to this so perhaps we could talk about them first before we could talk about how you've expanded on the idea where does it come from when I first started uh, writing fiction I, I was actually I had never taken creative writing courses I was uh, about 30 and I was trying to figure out how to write a short story and I didn't I had no idea how to come up with a plot so I started retelling Greek myths which was always an interest of mine um, and one of the things I started doing was was sort of Using various Greek myths as a sort of a, a frame on which to hang, you know, thinly veiled autobiographical material. And, for instance, with the very first section of, of Paul is some of the first material I, I wrote in this vein. And it had originally been a sort of attempt to do a retelling of the Tiresias story from, from Greek mythology. That fell away very, very quickly. But the interest in transformation mythologized, remained. An early influence for me was Virginia Woolf's Orlando, probably, obviously. Uh, one of the things I love about Woolf's book is her refusal to explain Orlando's ability to transform. Um, she, I think, had a probably upper-class sense of entitlement to do whatever she wanted, and I think that that was something that you know blew my mind 
as a young person, but as a writer, I think Wolf is somebody who sort of taught me a lot about just a, a, a sort of about how to use that sense of entitlement to tell the story you want to tell. And there were other, for me, other influences, uh, another huge influence, another person who told the beautiful story about shapeshifting, I think, is Octavia Butler, whose Wild Seed is certainly one of my favorite novels. And, you know, in all of her writing, she's using the conventions of, of science fiction to grapple in her case, particularly with the legacies of the transatlantic slave trade, um, the legacy of slavery in the United States with, you know, heteropatriarchy. She's always telling incredibly gripping stories that work on multiple levels. Um, But one of the things I really appreciate about Butler is how gripping her stories are and how much pleasure there is in the reading, like the kind of book that you lose sleep over. You can't put down you need to read the next one immediately. For me, like one of the tragedies of my reading life is that Octavia Butler died before she finished the third book in the Parables trilogy. So I, I think, you know, I from Wolf, I hope that I took that sort of sense of entitlement. And from Butler, I think my goal would be to, you know, take the, the sort of willingness to um, please a reader while also telling the story you want to tell. I think that uh, there's something sometimes devalued about work that is pleasurable to read. My hope is that people will, for instance, like read my book on a plane ride or while hiding out from family at a holiday uh, weekend or something like that. You know, it's sort of like I I hope it could be an escape rather than a sort of um, required reading. Well, I want to talk about this later on, but on on that theme as well, the book has, there's a lot of sex in it. There is. very well written so it's actually <laughs> often often quite hard to do you know there's obviously things like you know the which i think is, is terrible the, the idea of the bad sex awards and things you know what i mean the idea that you would discourage any writers from wanting to explore sure. that area seems seems crazy to me but also at the same time sometimes the book has a feel therefore of a cheap romance novel or you know pornography right. even which feeds into what you were saying you know you want this to be a readable book well i do and i think that you know one of the things that is interesting to me is the kind of writing that elicits bodily responses whether you know it's laughter or tears or you know other kinds of physical responses from the body arousal that's a cool thing that novels can do and so it delights me if people find you know the book to be compelling in those ways i i think it was I cut many sex scenes, I'll say that. It felt really important to me to stay true to what I think is true about the world, which is that sex can be a very important part of people's daily lives. And for certainly for queer and trans people, and certainly for me, you know, as a younger person kind of coming into my own understanding of myself, which is obviously a continually unfolding process, sex and and desire were some of the means through which I came to understand myself. And I think, you know, it felt like I could be in conversation with especially earlier queer writers who focused on sex, writers like Samuel R. Delaney, one of my heroes and and mentors to some extent as well, a teacher of mine, who's writing about sex through science fiction, through autoethnography, through theory, is, I think, really breaks open what's possible to to imagine. Um, I've been really influenced by writers like John Retchie, whose uh, City of Night, and most specifically whose book Numbers, 
were touchstones for me, both in the writing of this book and in my life. Um, there's a, actually a section of the book early on that's a pastiche of, of Recce's book numbers. And, you know, he, he's interested in cruising. And that, to me, was something that, you know, like gay men were writing about cruising. But I was experiencing queer cruising and, and queer, you know, sex cultures in ways that were not always being represented. I mean, there were, of course, writers like Sarah Schulman or Jane DeLynn or, you know, other writers who were, right. Samuel Ace, the poet, uh, whose recent collected works just came out. He was writing under the name Linda Smuckler in the 90s, and he was writing these extremely sexually explicit prose poems that really looked head on at queer masculinity, butch femme desire, BDSM, like consensual role playing and and the kinds of sex that were not always taken as a serious subject for literary investigation. So having those models for me was hugely important. I think also writers, you know, interestingly, like cis straight women writers or writers who might be under the sign of queer Writers like Mary Gateskill or Lynn Tillman or Dodie Bellamy, who's queer, obviously. Um, Those kinds of writers, I think, were also Kathy Acker, hugely influential to me, even though I think their influence is less obvious in the book. Going back to you talking about your earliest explorations of of, of fiction, trying to rewrite myths, and the book has sections through it where there are sort of short parables fairy stories yeah. that you know relate in some way to Paul's life but are again workings of myth so t- tell us about why you wanted to include those as well it was something that you know the the sort of the beginning of the book was coming from these retellings of mythological stories so it it felt right to keep that gesture in the book but when i had a complete manuscript and the first editor i worked with at rescue press the the writer hillary plum who's a fantastic editor um, and like a really brilliant developmental editor, she said to me, I think you either need more or fewer of these stories. And that forced me to articulate why I needed them. I mean, because my answer, you know, is always going to be more. I love excess. So, you know, more, more, of course, more. But when Hillary said that, I thought, okay, why do I have to keep these here? And I realized that what was important to me with those stories and the reason I wanted to add more is that I never want there to be an explanation for Paul's abilities, and that's not a spoiler. Like, for me, it's um, it's actually important from the perspective of working against a kind of totalizing trans narrative that I would offer contradictory and impossible origin stories for, for Paul's abilities to hopefully destabilize the idea. I think, like, queer and trans people are often, you know, we are often asked to come up with some kind of a coherent narrative of our existence. And it's, you know, I I might have a coherent narrative or a narrative that feels coherent to other people, but the sort of demand to do it... Nobody ever asked me that. It becomes really oppressive. And I think that um, one of the things fiction can do is offer sort of messy or unreasonable alternatives, like offer things that aren't, you know, theoretically um, tight. Offer something that you can't necessarily put your finger on that angles towards, you know, what you're trying to say. And and I think the fairy tales and the, the myths throughout, for me, um, I realized were so important because I realized that that's the work they were doing, sort of undermining the idea that this was the kind of shapeshifter narrative or, or sort of like science fiction book where you would get a clear explanation for why Paul's body can change. In a similar way, I mean, I think Paul, Paul's an incredible creation. He's, he's a wonderful character. And part of that is that he's 
he's often a bit of an asshole. He's he's amoral Absolutely. and ambivalent, and he uses this shape shifting way, you know, for his own selfish reasons, often in in you know quite troubling ways. But he's incredibly compelling nonetheless. And I wonder if that, you know, that idea of not making, he's no role model, for no, instance. No, absolutely. You know? And, I, and, you know, and I wasn't interested in writing a sort of like trans anthem of a book. Like I, that's it, valuable work that people can do. I don't want to do that. Paul, you know, is a character I hope is of interest to trans readers, but I don't think of Paul as a trans character per se. There are trans characters in the book. Um, Paul is doing something that is, that is different and it allows me to, I mean, in a way, what Paul does is allow me to, you know, give this character all of my own flaws and, and you know, uh, early assholeism and add some extra. And the thing that I think is important about characters not being role models is it, again, works against this idea of um, some representative uh, of a type. And I think that I, I really always want to resist the idea of like there's one book that you need to read that will explain this particular kind of identity category or experience to people who are not in it. Um, what we need is a lot of queer books and a lot of trans books and, and we need them to keep coming. You know, so I feel like one thing I can contribute is something that I know about, which is the nineties, the early nineties, you know, um, which, and I hope you will agree that a time when the music was better. Um, and we didn't have the internet as much. Uh, and so there's something really specific about that time that I feel like is interesting to think about now, and I hope to communicate to younger people. But what I want from younger people is to hear their stories about what it's like now for them. And so, for instance, with my students, when I teach a, I teach a queer and trans writing class that's a creative writing class, and we read contemporary queer and trans writers, but always with the aim of the students producing their own work, you know, like that. Anybody can learn from queer and trans writers, but I will also, you know, try to hold the space for their possible, anybody's possible queerness and or transness, which is a formulation that the really brilliant poet, Trace Peterson, the one of the editors of Troubling the Line, the trans and gender queer poetry anthology, she came up with this formulation, holding the space for everybody's possible queerness and or transness. And that, you know, to me is sort of like, I don't know what the possibilities are. The possibilities are proliferating right now. Everything is moving very fast. I want to know what it is like for younger people. I want to know what it is like for, you know, middle younger people. I want to know what it's like for older people. And so, you know, I think that the idea that this can be one book among many books is the most comfortable place for me. Um, especially with a character who is, you know, absolutely not a role model, but also ultimately the idea of role models is, is sort of like a bourgeois individualist idea that is is ultimately not really serving anybody. So, you know, kill all role models. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Andrea Lawler. And we're talking about their debut novel, Paul Takes the Form of a Mortal Girl. And Andrea, you you mentioned a couple of times the 90s, which is where this book is set. It's set in the early 90s. And the obvious question to ask would have been why, but we've just established before we started this interview we're we're roughly the same age. Mm-hmm. Um and your recreation of, you know, my memories of the of the early nineties in, in this book is amazing. I mean one of the great aspects of it, those feelings, the music and the, you know, the mixtapes and the fanzine world and things. And yeah, let's talk about well, I wanna talk about I guess you've mentioned a couple of times that, you know, the, the book is a way for you to to work through, I guess, some sort of autobiographical stuff. And I don't necessarily want to talk about the autobiographical aspects as such, but let's talk about where you were in the early 90s. You're sort of like, because Paul's at this age where he's, he's sort of in and out of college, you know, spends time in, in San Francisco, spends time in New York, spends time in uh, Provincetown. I basically want to know where you were in, in, in the early 90s and you're, you're, you know, finding your community, I guess, is what I'm trying to get sure, to. Yeah, I mean, I was in, you know, roughly all the places Paul was, although not always at the same times. I came out into queer life and culture in the late 80s, early 90s in New York City. Um, I went to college there for a little bit, dropped out, was very involved with, you know, organizing like ACT UP and Queer Nation, Pink Panther Patrol. Uh, Dyke Action Machine, Women's Health Action Mobilization. There was a lot of of really amazing uh, activism going on, and the the world I came out into was you know politically radical and and deeply coalitional. So the the understanding was like you know ACT UP, AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. The understanding was that people from radically different uh, walks of life could come together, work together with shared interests. And I think that that outlook has been my understanding ever since of, of what it can mean to to be queer, which is like appreciation and respect for difference uh, and understanding that if we all work together, we we can achieve some actual change. 
Uh, and, you know, and, and a kind of a, a radical politics that was that had a in many ways like a what I would say like a a queer aesthetic or a queer like I think part of like a queer cultural heritage is um you know a, a deep appreciation for pleasure a sense of humor playfulness um even in the face of you know devastating events and a sort of like a um an understanding that coming to self-awareness is a huge like a, a reverence for that as a part of a person's life so after I left New York, I, I went to Iowa City and, and finished college there, you know, going for a while, dropping out for a while, going back for a while, moving to Provincetown and working there for a while. So much of Paul's journey is a little bit similar to mine in that regard. I didn't live in San Francisco till you know, about a decade later. And there are a couple of other pieces in the book, settings in the book. There's a bit in Chicago. And I had been to Chicago. We went out to clubs in Chicago a lot at the time. Um, there's a longer section set at the Michigan Women's Music Festival, and that is a place that I never went. So I had to do quite a bit of research to try to get that right, because it's a very fraught uh, setting, politically, rightly so. It was a, you know, a long-running women's music festival um, in the United States that around the 90s became really avowedly trans-exclusionary. And and it was sort of, um, it was one of the battlegrounds of the sort of trans-exclusionary so-called radical feminists versus, you know, everybody else, I'd say. It has eventually shuttered um, because it was unsustainable. And because it is, you know, because I think people widely realize that it is not acceptable to exclude trans women from a women's festival. Um I had never gone, although I had friends who'd gone. I didn't go for what I thought at the time. You know, I thought I had aesthetic reasons for not going. I didn't really it like sounds that kind horrible. of music. It does. I mean, I don't really like camping. So, I, you know, there were a lot of different things I didn't like about the thought of it. But it took a few years to realize that I also felt sort of wrongly welcomed. That I, I felt sort of like I didn't feel like I was a woman. Why would I go? But part of that sort of like trans-exclusionary understanding was that they were actually like some of the people there were were fine with transmasculine people attending which made no, no sense to me because I do understand the value of a space that would be for instance for people who identify as women to go and and feel like that feels like an important sacred thing for people not for me so I had this sort of like waves of realization first not my thing aesthetically second oh not for me in terms of gender and then you know not long after that, I sort of had the realization like, oh, this is actually, you know, politically just like so unsupportable. I can't believe people go. And, um, you know, at that point, a lot of my friends were going to Camp Trans, which was a protest camp that sprung up in response. And, and you know, I think that that work was really important um, and obviously speaks to some of the stuff that's happening in the UK right now. But I wanted to research it and I wanted to feel like I had gotten that bit right so that, you know, I was representing something that people actually did want to go to. There were things about it that were appealing to people. Trans women, some trans women wanted to go for a reason. So I didn't want to satirize it. And so that was a place where, you know, I had to like do some reading, go down some internet rabbit holes. I had some really good conversations with some older lesbians who both appreciated it and were critical of it. And that was all really helpful. Yeah, that's like the most fictional bit of the book. 
and with San Francisco, the I was not in San Francisco at the time the book is set, but my my partner grew up in San Francisco, and I have a lot of friends who were there at the time, so I was able to again really rely on sort of informal oral history to to get those details, you know, hopefully more accurate. Um, I had to fact check a lot of my own memory, so that was kind of fun. I did some crowdsourcing, which was pretty fun. I tried to keep the historical accuracy. You know, the book, the present of the book is like 1993 to 1995. So there are places where, um, you know, I, I realized like, oh, that was not that single wasn't out for another month. Um, so he couldn't have been hearing it in a coffee shop, you know, in that scene. Um, there's one moment where a friend of mine who has like written a book about Riot Girl uh, had read one of the bound galleys of it. And, and she said to me, well, you know, it's very very kindly said, you know, I think it's interesting that you've taken this kind of poetic license with the Huggy Bear record, which was, in fact, you know, LP and not an EP, but I can see why you might like to, you know, she very, like, tenderly checked me on that, which was, for me, incredibly important. I think probably nobody else in the world would have gotten that as a conflict, but the fact that she got it, I wanted to get it right, and I was able to get that edit in. Whew. Um, and, you know, I had a friend who had worked in record stores in San Francisco at the time who was like, yeah, Amoeba wasn't, you know, on the hate then. It had to be Reckless Records. And so getting those details right for me was a way to sort of say, like, you know, there's magic in this book, but the magic is going to be hopefully thrown into relief by the the historical detail, which has to be, you know, it has to, it has to feel right if you were there. Does that you want answer to, your question? Yes, absolutely. That's That's amazing. Iowa City, so the sections in the book set in Iowa City, as you said, and you spent time there yourself. Now, of course, now you're teaching creative writing and, you know, Iowa is the place to go mm-hmm. if if you want to do that. At the time you were there. At the time I was an undergraduate English major who had a very strong position on MFA programs as like luxury degrees for bourgeois assholes. Like, I really was incredibly critical. I have had my comeuppance now having two graduate creative writing degrees. So, yeah, I've learned my lesson. But Iowa City in the 90s was a wonderful place to be. Um, I had gone there. I probably went there because of the writer's workshop but could not admit that to myself. I went because it had a good English department. It was a cheap state school, and I knew it was a queer-friendly college town. And all of those things proved to be true. Um, I ended up meeting quite a few people who went to the workshop, primarily from bartending at the, the nightclub that is very similar to the nightclub that Paul bartends at. Um, and this is a bit self-indulgent of me, but there's a discussion in the book about, which I, I just wanted to spend some time talking about, which is about the um, the sort of gender ambivalence of cover versions oh, yeah. that you talk about, which is a great, it's a great section. Let's talk about that. Well, originally that had been a footnote. Originally there had been a number of footnotes, and then I sort of removed all of them except for there's one long footnote at one point in the book. But there there's a sort of extended piece where, where Paul is tripping on acid and essentially giving a lecture on, on cover songs and, and gender. And I think, I mean, doesn't everybody secretly want to be a music critic? Uh, but, you know, I, I think I'm also uh, really not suited to be a music critic. Um, so it was, it was much more satisfying to give Paul something to perform. So in a way, I could sort of um, say my piece, make my playlist, uh, talk about what I want to talk about, but have a dodge. There is one footnote, as you said, yeah, left in the footnote, book. Yeah. And what you do with that footnote, I think, is a brilliant way to do it, which is basically you give a snapshot of Paul's queer history up to date 
as a footnote. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I felt really like I I was trying to figure out different ways to, you know, capture a whole of his life up to that point. I think in part out of a, a sense of like an anxious desire to to give a complete picture. But I think that there is also perhaps something the big gay milestones that's the there's a footnote of big gay milestones in in Paul's life up to that point and um they are you know each one would probably be a story and yet at the same time and this was my experience certainly as as you know the sort of layers peel off and and there are more more things there to come out as or or reveal to oneself the previous epiphanies you know they're there but they're they for me they they had become a footnote. And and I think there's something about uh, when you are living really in a very, you know, queer-centered world or queer and or trans-centered world, sometimes the, the steps that you got to get there fall away a little bit. And I think that that was sort of something that I wanted to both represent and put in a right relationship to the rest of the narrative. Just one more question and then I'll get you to, to read a bit of the book if you would. Um, you alluded to a uh, science fiction writer earlier on in the interview, and there's a lot of trans science fiction, which when you think about it, obviously, you know, quite makes sense. I wanted to ask if you could, if who else is out there at the minute, any good queer or trans writers that you'd recommend oh, just off the top of your head? Totally amazing. Well, I have to recommend my best friend, Jordi Rosenberg, who is also um, my housemate and has written a fantastic novel called Confessions of the Fox, which is available in the UK on Atlantic. And it is a, a trans, metafictional trans retelling of the Jack Shepard story, uh, the prison, the great prison break artist um, as a trans man. And, and it has a sort of metafictional, very, very funny story that plays out in the footnotes. I think really pleasurable book. There's a, a book by the wonderful young writer Rivers Solomon, who is actually UK-based, called An Unkindness of Ghosts, which is a, more of a space opera than speculative fiction. It's really a wonderful story with trans characters, intersex characters, um, non-binary characters that is asking questions about gender, but in the context of a story that imagines, um, that extrapolates a future society on this generation ship that is absolutely informed by the legacy of transatlantic slave trade. And so that book to me is interesting on so many levels. Uh, the Canadian writer Kai Cheng Tom has a, one of my favorite recent novels. It's called Fierce Femmes and Notorious Liars. And the subtitle is a trans girl's confabulous memoir. It is not a memoir. There are actual mermaids it is really compelling and and beautiful, fabulous fiction. There's a another book if if people are interested in you know the '90s and gender and the club scene. And there's a wonderful book I love so much. It's called Sketch to See, and it's by the writer Matilda Bernstein Sycamore. And she's looking at 1995 Boston, which is you know terrible place. But she's she's looking at her her uh, protagonist is in the club scene. And really sort of living through that sort of moment in terms of drugs and clubs and AIDS and queer organizing and and the, you know, the legacies of uh, family traumas. So that's not speculative, but I think it has a I, I highly recommend it. And I'm really excited about Juliet, Juliet Jake's fourth 
coming or next project, which is a collection of short stories, historical fiction, looking at, at trans people in the UK. So that's super exciting. Can I get you to read a bit? Absolutely. So I'm going to read a section which is located towards the end of the book, but which um, takes place before the book starts. So there will be no spoilers. It is a section in which Paul is remembering his first love. And it is also an homage to the queer writer Joe Brainerd, who came up with this form, I Remember. Paul remembered staking out the cubbyhole with Tony Pinto because Madonna and Sandra Bernhardt had once had a date there in 1987 or kissed or something. Paul remembered staying up late to watch Madonna and David Letterman, never daring to believe anything gay would happen on television. Paul remembered Hudson Street in the rain. Paul remembered the porn store on the corner, looking at vintage physique magazines, those long-gone men in leopard skins and posing jocks. Paul remembered Tony Pinto making muscles to distract a shopkeeper while Paul stuffed an old drummer down his pants. Paul remembered three packs of old gay porn mags, the good ones on the outside and the crappy third stuffed inside like a grab bag, the newsprint stories and letters signed a reader in San Diego or horny midshipman. Paul remembered Blue Boy, Numbers, Honcho, Freshman. Paul remembered the case of the tape Tony Pinto made for him the second time they met, Tony's scratchy handwriting marking out the song titles, original artists in parentheses when the song was a cover. Who said gay men always had beautiful handwriting? Tony Pinto had spent his boyhood rolling six-sided dice and sketching elves, and it showed. Paul remembered bizarre love triangle and a little respect, and there's more to love than boy meets girl. Paul remembered the first Saturday of the month dances at Columbia, crashing the Ivy League, being early, walking around the block ten times, the Greek diner in Morningside Heights, cheap, bad coffee. Paul remembered coffee breath. Paul remembered C. Howard's violent mints. Paul remembered the night he met Tony Pinto, smoking on the steps of Earl Hall, trying to tell who belonged, Tony Pinto stretching his gumby arms in a terrible imitation of a voguer. Paul remembered lights up, finding his stashed coat. Paul remembered the meatpacking district, clubs which changed sex according to the night, click club Fridays, meet Saturdays, or Jackie 60, same cinder block walls painted black. Paul remembered 4 a.m. bagels with bright pink lox-flavored cream cheese at the bakery on the corner. Paul remembered the Christopher Street Pier at night. 14-year-old queers in tube tops and short shorts, cigarette cherries reflected in the oily water. Paul remembered saying how fast they grow up, and Tony Pinto shaking his head ruefully and saying, Kids, what are you going to do? Paul remembered drinking at Max Fish with Tony's straight goth friends from Fordham, walking west for miles with Tony until they hit the water, sitting on a broken concrete pylon and kissing for hours, hands down each other's pants even though Tony had a serious boyfriend of two months. Paul remembered the sunburn Tony got at Pride that year, how their older friends carried sunblock, Tony's wounded red-brown chest and back like a soldier wearing puka beads, some older lesbian with a crew cut and a squeezed tube of aloe vera, sitting in the shade on the steps of a church, which was really a bar, far enough away from the fray, in the shade, laying Tony across his lap so he could think, Tony lay across my lap like a pieta, and Tony's serious boyfriend of two months rounding the corner laughing. Paul remembered giving Tony back. Paul remembered sharing grilled cheese sandwiches with Tony and that girl. What was her name? Glynis. Yes, Glynis with the gay mom from the rap group for gay teens at the center. The three of them college kids, older and not from the city, maybe a little too old to be in a rap group, but officially still teens, still youth. 
I'll remember the working group he joined because Tony Pinto was joining, meeting at an apartment of a much older gay man with a job and a leather couch and crudite in the living room while they made plans to die on the street. Paul remembered the aching hall of the center, those Monday night meetings in the belly of the whale, the incomprehensible reports from the treatment action group and the meeting's incomprehensible re- response, what Tony Pinto called the grown-ups fighting. Paul remembered carrying store-bought frozen soup to a man he didn't know, with Rena, somewhere in Gramercy, one of those high-rises that made him feel like he was in 1970s Poland, leaving the soup on the dusty kitchen island, feeding the man's tropical fish while Rena changed the sheets on his hospital bed, all the while days of our lives continued as if nothing were different. Paul remembered the men lined up in green plastic chairs at the center, young men with canes and liver spots. Paul remembered the cheery rattle of day of the week pillbox compartments. Paul remembered the smell of medicine soap, sulfur and sweet, the gash on his palm from a fruit salad can lid. How is it possible to get a fruit salad injury? Wanting the sliced cherry. Glimmer of fear in the eyes of the receptionist at the center who sent him to the free clinic. Fear of his blood, now contaminating the can. Paul remembered colored condoms. Paul remembered a condom stretching over him like a balloon animal, unlubricated, Tony squeezing out two free packets of probe. Paul remembered Tony's pockets, his backpack always full of giveaways and liberated rolls of toilet paper from restaurant bathrooms, Tony stopping in the foyer of every bar to fill up, the top of the cigarette machine, wherever they kept the bowl, Tony collecting condoms in all flavors and brands and colors, like baseball cards, his shock and horror at the condom stapled into the bin box page, straight acting, straight looking, WM seek same. Not because he didn't agree that self-hating homosexuals should fuck off and die, but because that exact condom was wasted and some proud and out queer might need it. Paul remembered flannel shirts with the sleeves cut off. Paul remembered Tony's black leather motorcycle jacket with its rectangular stickers bragging frequently femme and basically butch and safe sex stud in neon green, his black hair shagging over the collar like a Portuguese leaf garret. How is anything ever so smooth as Tony's just slightly too long hair? Paul remembered Tony's serious boyfriend of two months, then three, four, five, David, unsuitable David, the waspy Jewish guy who played lacrosse at Andover and loved John Cheever, older but recognizable to Paul, his easy law school ways, his embarrassing obsession with any dark-skinned man, how he'd settled for Tony Pinto, who was not dark enough, how he'd cheated on Tony Pinto over and over again, how he'd once at a demo outside St. Patrick's run his index finger down Paul's chest, down to his navel, dipping, then turning away from Paul, who was enraged, flattered, humiliated, and never mentioned it to Tony. Paul remembered asking his friend Jimmy how proud he felt to say his friend Jimmy about Jimmy Batelli, the kindest and most handsome man in ACT UP, an older man who preferred older men, and that he'd allowed himself to be befriended by Paul was a miracle. Paul remembered asking Jimmy Batelli where he'd been, why he'd missed some meeting, and Jimmy shrugging, oh, another memorial service, darling, you know. Jimmy turning away from Paul kindly, even in his despair. Paul's relief to be so young, his 19th year a talisman, the word containing the word teen, its self-protection, from what the older guys, those memorial-weary men in their 20s, 30s, 40s, what they were losing. So I've been talking to Andrea Lola. We've been talking about their debut novel, Paul Takes the Form of a Mortal Girl, which is out now in the UK from Picador. Andrea, thank you so much for coming in and telling us about it. Thank you so much, Neil, for having me. This is wonderful. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Thank you.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.